Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and you're listening to On The Clock. On The Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to On The Clock. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb. And as we start our second season of On The Clock, one of the things we're trying to do um, as we look back at the first season, where we talked about uh, quite a lot of COVID-related uh, issues. I don't know if the listeners know, but there was a pandemic called COVID. It made most of the newspapers. And we talked about it quite a bit because schools were doing different things. And it was interesting to me and I think a lot of listeners, who many of whom may have children, to see what districts were doing around the country as they were coping with all the aspects of, 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 that, of that pandemic. And as we hopefully are moving out of it, as we get in, into uh, the 1st of February, as we tape this show with Shannon Cox, who's a superintendent of Montgomery County Education Service Center in Dayton, Ohio, uh, we want to start moving into some discussions uh, in areas where you may not know a lot about uh, in education in America. And one of the... Um, one of the, the aspects of American education that I've always found fascinating is that in a lot of rural areas, there are these, these service centers that actually have a real strong role in helping multiple districts. In, in my own state of Maryland, we do not have service centers. Everything is focused in countywide districts. And there are other states like that. But in a lot of states, um, these, these service centers really play a major role. Our guest today, Shannon Cox. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the clock. How are you today? I am doing very well. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what is uh, in, when you go home for Christmas and you meet old friends who haven't seen you in 20 years and you say, I'm a superintendent, and to the extent that you do dive into what a service center is, how do you describe it in you know 20 seconds or less? Yeah, um, I usually say educational service centers are there for their middle name, the service we provide to districts so students can be successful. So what what would you say your three or four roles are? Do you, do you look for certain services that, that the districts would rather not have to focus on? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. So a lot of times it's, it's twofold. We certainly need to be reactionary. So when districts do need something that, that they either don't have the capacity in staffing to handle or they need more resources than what they have available to them, we are, we are certainly there to step in and be reactionary and, and provide that service. It's also important to us, and it's part of my leadership uh, mantra, to be visionary leaders. So to really think about what's happening in our county, in our state, in our localized region, and, and think to ourselves and bring my team together, like, what do we need that we don't have? What service can we provide that we aren't currently providing that maybe the districts don't even know they need yet? So one of the um, things we've talked about um, prior to the show is that Dayton, Ohio, really is at the intersection of what we loosely frame the opioid crisis uh, in America. And I suspect I know uh, about what a lot of people know about the opioid crisis, that it has uh, something to do with the merger of cheap ability to get a drug that's incredibly um, uh, easy to become addicted to, and and when that meets a um, disenfranchised, economically depressed region, you, you know, how could it go any other way? Is that 
am I only scratching the surface of how this got to be? And uh, give me a, a little bit more thought and detail on why we are having this crisis and what I think is probably into its second decade now. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, um, one of the main reasons that we are dealing with this as a, a culture and a, and a community is exactly how you explained it. Um, and that's really for our adult population. So if we think back to pre-recession here in the Dayton region, we had several really large companies or national headquarters. Um, we were very automotive driven. We are very um, manufacturing driven here in this area. And so we had several of those very big national headquartered companies literally just pick up and leave. And that meant there was a lot of job loss. That meant that there was a lot of depressed adults um, really thinking about what am I, how am I going to make my next house payment and how am I going to, um, you know, pay for the car and how am I going to put food on the table? And I, I don't think what we realized at the time is that it, that was just part of the issue. <laughs> um, and you are right. There were a lot of ways and means to be able to consume or um, get a hold of an opioid. And, and, and that, again, part of the illegal structure of, of the drug. But there was actually quite a, quite a bit of legal prescriptions happening as well. And our area cracked down on what they called our police and our sheriff's department called pill mills, um, which were just a lot of prescribers over prescribing. And so if we started peeling back the layers, we started seeing young people with this addiction as well, which is something we hadn't seen before. So Dayton is the urban center of Montgomery County. Montgomery County has very rural districts. We have obviously urban and suburban. So we were we were this nice little test case of where is the opioid crisis really existing? And the answer was everywhere. Um, and it didn't discriminate. It was in every zip code, uh, including the my little town that I live in. I'm a small town girl from this area. And, and we were burying children um, at a rate that I just was really, you know, one of those things where you step back and think, is this really real? Is this really happening in our town? So there's two other facets about the opioid epidemic that I think were kind of not underscored as much. The first one is exactly as you described it, and we were dealing with that as a community and culture. The second one, once we started seeing these young people suffering with addiction, we were like, well, where is that coming from? And it, it started possibly with a tooth extraction, a wisdom teeth extraction, and you needed maybe one dose or two doses of an opioid, but you got a prescription for 30 doses. And so then very easily that became an addictive nature. And then that leads into where do I get it again? And so we were having grandparents uh, having a hard time keeping track of where their prescriptions were because they all of a sudden weren't in their, their drug closets in, you know, in their homes or in their bathrooms. So that was sort of the second piece. And then we looked around and said, okay, but we are also dealing with all of these social emotional aspects. We've got people that are just really needing to numb themselves because of um, the anxiety or the, um, you know, the depression that was happening because of, again, after effects of the recession, um, losing homes. And we started seeing that also filter down into young people. Um, and so there were really those three kind of big pockets of why we were being faced with such a crisis. Why, 
What were the companies that left? I mean, just off the top of your head, what were the companies that were such a, a player there that left? Yeah, so the largest one was the was GM. Uh, we had mm-hmm. quite a facility with thousands of jobs here in the Dayton region. I mean, thousands of jobs. And so there were thousands of families that no longer had income. Um, yep. And we just didn't have enough job opportunity at that point to, to fill the gap. And a lot of folks, again, we think about the housing market and how that crashed. <laughs> um, we just had a lot of big, big economic things, if you will, happening at the same time. And so people really just didn't have the the skill set to, to navigate it. I, I hear and I've heard, you know, I live in the D.C. area. I hear a lot of policymakers who say that people who live in, in economically depressed areas ought to just get up and move to a place that isn't so economically depressed, which is a really easy thing if your grandfather didn't take you to Ohio State football games and your parents are, you know, grandparents are buried in the area. It's really hard, isn't it, to just get up and leave when you've become so ingrained. And I think in Ohioans, and I know something about them, my dad's from uh, outside of Toledo, it's really painful for them to leave um, an area that they've grown to love. People in Ohio definitely love Ohio. You know, it's interesting. Um, Here's fun fact. Ohio is the third least transient state in the nation. People who are born in Ohio stay in Ohio. And even if they leave for a few years to go to college or take a job somewhere else, they come back. Yep. That's great. I, uh, that, and that is part of the problem. And so how um, I think we probably should dive into a little bit about how this has manifested itself lately. Um, but uh, what, what were some of the what were some of the initiatives that you pushed, say, to what were you working on two and a half years ago before this crisis started to find ways to, to provide something as uh, simple but as important as hope that yeah. students don't need to be doing this? Absolutely. So a couple of factors. So our community here in the Dayton region really believes and has put their money and resources in what we call collective impact. So we have a, a, a mission minded driven group of people from a variety of different aspects. We knew we couldn't educate our way out of this. We knew we couldn't pray our way out of it. We knew we couldn't arrest our way out of it, Um, but we had to do something. And so collectively, there was a Montgomery County coalition. I actually started a a coalition in my hometown with a couple of um, hometown friends who had lost some loved ones. And we started just wrapping around the families and really finding out what's the story, what's, what's behind this. And as personally and professionally, what we found is we, we didn't have hope. We didn't have a sense of future at all. And so that really pushed us here at the Educational Service Center under my leadership to really drive home something that we now call future self-vision or future self Um, it's regardless of your circumstances, can you actually see yourself in the future? Can you envision the quality? And that's not just what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Like we're beyond that. It's 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, but really what quality of life do you want to have? What, what, what neighborhood do you envision yourself living in? What's your family structure like? And sadly, what we found is a lot of young people thought the rite of passage into adulthood was going to prison or dying. And wow. so we thought, well, no, not on our watch. We are not going to, mm-hmm. we're not going to take that as the answer. So the hope became really focusing on how can we ensure that young people and adults have that future self vision, that there is hope driving forward. And so we've put a lot of time and energy around curriculum. We put a lot of time and energy around professional development. 
we put a lot of hope in, um, I'm sorry, a lot of time and resources around building hope. And that means setting goals and helping people really take one step at a time. You can't get to the future without the next step. So just putting the left foot in front of the right foot. So circling back to your role as a service center, do does every district within, how many districts are in your service center? Overview. We have 16 that align with us, but we actually work with about 90 different educational agencies. And so if you roll out a plan for something, um, whether it's one of these programs you just mentioned, does everybody take part in it or do they have the option to say yes or no? Thank, thank you. No, thank you, Shannon. Uh, yes, that's exactly how it works. So we kind of take, um, we always create it so that it is open for all of our community, all 16 school districts. Um, and again, we've got the the largest urban is Dayton Public. We've got a very small um, rural school that is actually about 98% African-American. And they live in the, I mean, like their school is in the middle of cornfields. So it's pretty unique, but they have like under 300 kids in the entire district. So it really depends. And again, Ohio is also a local control state. So that makes a difference. So we always put the welcome mat out for all of our districts and Anybody else in the state who wants to participate will we'll welcome you as well. Um, but not everybody does. And not everybody does at the same level. I call it polite participation. No one says, don't do that because I don't need it. They all do it. They all say, that's a great idea. We just don't need it right now. But I'm so glad that the neighbor next door does need right. it and they've got it. So I think we have to now move into um, your role in the last year and a half, I'm, I'm assuming your schools were shut down just like everybody else's for, I don't know, six months at least. And how did that, that there's no way that went any better with that dynamic. Um, I can't imagine that that was helpful to your cause. No, that's exactly right. So um, I actually took the lead here at the ESC um, in the 1920 school year. So I had impeccable timing to become the first female superintendent here. But um, <laughs> the good news was um, I was here and we were ready. We were ready to pivot. And we did have obviously that spring of 2020, everyone was shut down. But starting in the fall, I had about half of my districts actually open the doors and do some sort of in-person learning. And that's that's been shut down again. It's They've opened back up, but I've got about three districts that haven't shut the doors yet since the fall of, of uh, the 2021 school year. Right. Um, so again, mixed bag of how we were educating students, mixed bag of whether we were you know wearing masks or not wearing masks. And it really is, is up to each. So that meant we had to be ready to help each of them in their unique circumstances. Um, so that's that's been a challenge, but the team here has been ready for it. We have a rock star team, and and I think we've done a pretty good job. So the the new buzzword in American education, and every six months there's always a new one. Um, in my time in education, which has now been I guess 22 years, um, we have gone through so many of them. But now mental health seems to be at the top of the charts, and I don't think that this is an issue now um, that's. Um, focus solely on um, economically depressed areas. It seems like it is everywhere. It seems right. like it is a direct result of, um, let's face it, um, when when the um, pandemic started, all of us were, were um, super careful with our kids, super concerned that this was going to be um, something that we were never going to get out of in a normal way. And as it's played out, 
And so mental health is now an issue, 51% increase in female suicides around the country. And I, I, I ask this to everybody I talk to, whether it's on the podcast or not, has this, um, is, is, are you seeing this in your area, no matter where they are? The answer universally, yes. Mental health is a huge issue. Suicides are up. Uh, and I hate to ask, but I'm guessing you're seeing some of that yourself. We are. And unfortunately, um, we were made aware this week um, we, we lost a student to a possible suicide. Um, they're still investigating that, but it, it looks pretty certain um, here in Montgomery County. And, and that we know of, we had two other attempts um, in, in the county this week as well. And those are just ones that have been reported up to you know, my agency um, because we do provide some, some services that help families get through that and school districts get through that because there's, there's a need there. Mental health, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we were really just starting to pay attention to what we what we now know to be social-emotional competencies, right? Like those life skills that help you navigate through life when life is hard. Because what we what we know for a fact is that life is going to have a struggle. Clearly, I, I kind of hope that we can downshift a little bit. Um, here in the Dayton region, we went from the epicenter of the opioid epidemic to 15 day. 15 tornadoes that rolled through Memorial Day 2019 to a mass shooting downtown um, to some KKK rallies wow. straight into a pandemic. And so, um, you know, that's that's normalized stress, which is never good for anyone's psychological well-being, mental wellness, spiritual wellness. I mean, it has been a rough road um, over the last three years, really. And so mental health is important. And we knew that before the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. Now what we're doing is we're seeing the symptoms of that. And my fear is, Todd, that if we don't start thinking about it holistically, um, because right now we're just talking about it in silos, we're talking about suicide rates, and then what do we do? What do we do to help that? And we're talking about lots of learning loss. And then what do we do about that? And and then we, we we're talking about you know preschoolers coming in with, um, you know think about it they're three years old four years old a third of their life if not more has been in sort of a quasi shutdown quarantine bubbled kind of world yep. so what does that do to normal just brain development and interpersonal skills we we really have to step back and start thinking about this and looking at it from a holistic standpoint. Um, and, and then, and then we got to do something about it. We can't just sit around and talk about it. Uh, I was, I, I tell this story a lot and maybe, maybe too much, but it affected me. I was in Washington, DC. I was trying to help a, uh, a charter school in Southeast DC, um, uh, make the case that it, its charter should be renewed. And, you know, uh, admittedly their academic results probably were not what they had hoped for when they had their charter established. And I was talking to parents of about 30 of them about why they liked the school. We were trying to make the case um, anecdotally, perhaps more so than data driven as to why the school should, should stick around. And I asked them why they liked it. And they said, um, to a person, all moms, they were, they they felt safe when their kid was there. And it makes you, um, it, it is, it's always been a constant reminder to me that uh, academic performance doesn't really matter if your kid's sick or if you're worried about your kid's health, mental, physical, or otherwise. And it sort of it reminds me, um, another analogy, Shannon, is, you know, like when you're on the airplane 
And um, they tell you if the mask falls down, you're supposed to put the mask on yourself first and then, and then your child so that you can help them. Like that's um, sort of where we are now is that we, we, learning loss is meaningless. If, if, we, if we have hope loss and we have mental health issues, none of it else, none, no, nothing else really seems to matter, does it? That's exactly right. And we all know how the brain works in the first place, right? Like if the cortex is not available to function, uh, to learn and, and receive information, then it doesn't matter. And most of the time when we are under chronic stress and that cortisol washes over our brain, the cortex is not open for business at this time. Um, and so they're not going to be able to learn. So again, I'm not sure why we would expect it to happen <laughs> um, yeah. under the conditions that we are. And, and that what we've also been very keenly aware of, this is not just about learning loss and chronic stress for the students. Our teachers, our parents, and our teachers, our community members who have gone through this just as much as the students have. So it's exactly that. Put your oxygen mask on first. We actually have a training that's called that um, hmm. because we have to make sure the adults in the school building are taken care of and that they can be regulated enough to be the safe spot, be the safe person to build that relationship with the kid who's having trouble. Um, the, the parents felt safe in that school because the adults in that school made it a safe place to be. I don't know that school, but I'm telling you, that's, that's the key. Yep. And we have to have healthy adults, both mentally and physically. So f final question on the op opioid and the drug and the drug issue. Has it gotten worse, better over this time? I mean, I would imagine that it has to have not gotten better in the last two years. Well, actually, it's, it's interesting. So um, right off the bat, because there was such a concerted effort to shut down the two cartels that you know, had made their way and called Dayton home, uh, yep. because we had put a lot of effort from our faith-based community, from our educating um, educators, from our law enforcement, uh, because we did a lot of education to the community as a whole that People, you know, people who are addicted aren't necessarily making the best choices. So please don't hold them to the choices they're making. And by the way, there's this other thing called Narcan and you can give somebody a second chance. So yeah. that that effort actually did make a difference. And so we saw a steady decline. Um, but what we what we realized pretty quickly is that our meth, our meth numbers were going to go up. Methamphetamines were going to go up because that's that's sort of the step down drug, if you will. So we traded one drug for the other, but overall as a community, we actually did have better numbers. Suicides were down, job markets were up. We started seeing the economy rebuild. We had a ton of what we call mom and pop shops come into the area and call, call themselves home. So they weren't replacing thousands of jobs, but they were replacing 50 jobs, 100 jobs at a time. So all of a sudden, you know, we started to see a, a pretty good upswing uh, then the tornadoes rolled through. So that, obviously, <laughs> and so we did start to see opioid numbers go back up, but not nothing and not near to the level that they were pre-pandemic. Yep. Um, so finally, as we um, tape this the very first few days of February, 
let's let's go out on a positive note. How excited is Ohio about having a Super Bowl yeah. <laughs> uh, Super Bowl participant? I know um, I follow Ohio sports. Cincinnati and Cleveland are are long suffering fans. This is has to be one of the big surprises uh, that anybody could have imagined. I think they were 151 to make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals with Joe Burrow, who's an Ohio kid, yeah. uh, at, at the helm. Uh, you guys have to be fired absolutely, up. Absolutely, absolutely. It doesn't matter. You know, a lot of people want to say, "Oh." Where, where have these Bengal fans been for the last 33 years? But you know what? It doesn't matter. It makes people happy. Um, it's just such an amazing feeling. It's been 33 years, 1989. I won't even tell you what age I was at that point. But, you know, I mean, it's just an amazing feeling. And so it's really something collective we can get behind. And it just makes people smile. And let me tell you, we need a good dose of that. So it's been fun. It's so amazing. I, um, when when we didn't have sports for a good long while here in Maryland, I, I went to a lacrosse game, a high school lacrosse game, and that that had just opened up and had allowed the students to participate as fans. And the uh, mascot was out there, this weird looking admiral outfit that the school has. We're in Annapolis, so everything's named after the sailing community. And you could feel the need to be around that energy. And um, it, we really missed something when we didn't have it. And I'm so happy for the people of Ohio. Um, I'm a big Joe Burrow fan, so I'm rooting for, uh, for Joe. And uh, Shannon, thank you so much much for what you do. Uh, I hope our listeners get an appreciation of the challenges that you face uh, in a special part of our country, um, Ohio, and and I hope to talk to you and, and see you again in person real soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit www.strategosgroup.com. Please consider subscribing on your podcast streaming platform so you don't miss out on our next episode. And until next time, I'm Todd Dallas-Lamb, signing off.